ask you if you would open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be continuing our study of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. What I loved about the songs this morning is that uh, that first song by John Wesley and Canna B is, uh, write it down, Barbara, that's one of my funeral hymns that's got to be sung. So you got to add to that blessed assurance. You got to add to that before the throne of God above. So yeah, there you go. It's going to be a lot of singing, though. I mean, that's the way we like to do it. Um, praise the Lord. Um, but what I love about it, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Amazing grace, right? All deal with the amazing grace. They deal with the amazing love of God. And in 1917, a hymn was written by Friedrich Lehman. It's sung in churches to this very day called The Love of God. And the first stanza of that hymn reads as follows. It says, The love of God is greater for than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son. The aching soul again made whole and his priceless pardon won. And then the last stanza of that song reads as follows. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Today we're going to embark on a subject that is critical to our faith, and it is the love of God. And it's one of these areas that I think many people get to the point where, oh, I, I know all about the love of God. And it is this love, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, right, that stops us dead in our tracks. Why? Because I believe that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, like I, have had some of these questions. For instance... How can God forgive me? Question mark. I'm not worthy of forgiveness. You ever feel that? I'm not worthy of forgiveness. You ever think back on your past life prior to being a Christian and go, why in the world would the Lord forgive me? I'm not worthy of forgiveness. How can a loving, righteous God love such a sinner as myself? And how could God have caused His Son to bear the penalty for my sin? These are questions that I often ponder, it seems incessantly. I sit there and I stand amazed, like the hymn says, in the presence of, and wonder, how could He love a sinner such as me? Paul even pondered that question in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, this is a trustworthy statement, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he adds a little note, among which I was the foremost. I was the chief of sinners. The answer to all of this is the love of God the love of God. And in our text today, John speaks about this 
great love of God. And he has done this throughout this epistle. And, and John's premise is pretty simple. His premise is we are to love one another as God has loved us. How did God love us? Well, we know God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. He paid the penalty for our sin. He bore on the cross the wrath of God for our sin and became that pleasing and acceptable sacrifice unto God. Therefore, we as believers ought to love one another as God loves us. And this love of God is an identifying mark. It is one of many, but it is an identifying mark of a believer. Many times we speak of the great victories of God that he's demonstrated in, in our life, and we see the mighty hand of God. And many times we think of, wow, the vastness and the richness of the word of God. And we see his, God's mighty mind. But when we speak of the love of God, it is then we peer into the heart of God. And we see a magnanimous love. We see an indescribable love. We see a love that cannot even be reconciled to our earthly and to our mortal minds. Today I want to attempt to explore the heart of God by looking at the infinitely rich love of God. And we're going to do this with one verse. 1 John 4, 7. And I hope to lay the foundation of three principles we find in our text. Principle number one. God's love begins or it originates with God. God's love begins and it originates with God. The second principle. God's love is defined by God. God's love is defined by God. And the third principle. God's love is given, is shed abroad, it's poured out, it's dumped upon the believer. And my hope is that in doing so, we'll get lost. We'll get lost in the love of God. You know what would be amazing? You know, sometimes they tell you when you speak, you want to be able to drive a point or you want to, you want to, you know, you want your audience to walk away with something, Right? Ideally, I pray that if the Spirit of God speaks to your heart today, I pray that we walk away in bewilderment. We walk away in, in puzzlement. We walk away with awe. And we would say, how could these things be? Look at 1 John 4, verse 7. It reads as follows, Beloved, let us love one another, for the love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. I mentioned the three principles. Let's look at the first one. God's love begins with God. This is often stated, but it, oftentimes it's seldom understood. God is the source of love. God's love is one. It's one of his attributes. It's one of his many attributes. God's love is goes along with God's holiness, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's judgment, God's omniscience, omnipresence. It is one. There is a tendency in, 
in, in the world today to define God strictly and solely by love. But God's love coexists and is consistent with those other attributes. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And look with me at verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Word of God reads, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul in order that you may live. Moses is the speaker here, and he tells the children of Israel that God is going to circumcise their hearts. And you all know what that means, and we don't have to go into graphic detail there. In order to remove the deadness of sin. And when you remove the deadness of sin, you remove the deadness toward God. That's what happens. So he's going to remove the deadness of sin, and he's going to replace it. Notice this. He's going to replace it with love, but a love for God. A love for God. In order that the worship of God in Israel would be complete, and the worship of God would be pure. He goes on, and we see here, that this in and of itself is an act of God. God in His love is the initiator of love. I want you to think about that. God in His love is the initiator of love. God's love is pure. God's love is motivated solely by God's merciful and gracious character. Did you ever stop to think, God is not compelled to love you as we think of being compelled, but God has chosen to love you and pour out His blessing upon you. God's love cannot be compared to human love. I think that's the first mistake we make when we try to compare God's love to human love. Human love is motivated by many things. Many things motivate human love. But primarily what motivates human love is emotion. That's the primary motivation. Human love can be motivated by what we want. We speak about falling in love or this person is so in love with that man. Human love can be hurt when the very thing we find, the very thing that we desire, and that love is not reciprocated. Human love could be hurt that way. So as we look at this, let's look at the second principle. God's love is defined by God. And I mentioned before, it is consistent with the rest of God's attributes of holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, forbearance, etc. God's love is consistent. I want you to remember that. It's consistent with those other attributes. So if God's love is consistent with holiness, then it would be inconsistent of God to love anything that is holy, unholy. Right? Because it's consistent with it. Right? 
Which is why God can have mercy on sinners and yet can condemn sin. Because God is both loving and just. His justice has been satisfied through the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I want to make an important statement here. God's love is not tolerance of all things wicked and evil. If the Word of God speaks against the particular sins, God's love is not tolerant of that. As I mentioned, God's love is consistent with His character, consistent with His proclamation, consistent with His decrees, and consistent with His Word. Now, man being a fallen, fallen creature can be tolerant of things that are evil and things that are unholy. But God in His character cannot sweep away sin. He can't sweep it under the carpet. God is holy. Holy is the Lord. Sin must be dealt with and judged. Injustice must be dealt with and judged. God does not tolerate everything. Love is not love. I want to make this clear. This is important. One of the greatest accusations against Christians in the church is that they're unloving. Because Christians have defined love, true Christians have defined love as God has defined love. And it must be holy, right, and true. So God's love is not tolerant of all things that people define for themselves. Human love can never be perfect. Never. Why? Because human beings are not perfect. Human beings are fallen creatures. And our love is influenced by our biases, our likes, our preferences. All these things infiltrate what we call love and prejudice our ability to love perfectly. Look, just look at the world. Look at racism and look at prejudice. You know, there are some people that are racist that are, you know, tax-paying, good, law-abiding citizens, right? But the racism colors their love. You'll hear men sometimes or women say, I like, you know, tall, thin men, or I like, you know, blondes, or I like brunettes, or whatever. And those biases begin to twist so that blondes or tall, thin men like myself become very... <laughs> Me become very. <laughs> I'm gonna quit while I'm ahead. But that's not true of God's love. It's not true of God's love. Listen, how do we know God's love? Let's go to the Word of God. Let God tell us regarding His love. Let's start in the Old Testament. We start in Deuteronomy. Go to Exodus. Chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, if this isn't one of your favorite verses in Scripture, I hope you'll make it one of your favorite verses in Scripture. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Again, the Word of God speaks. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, 
the Lord God. Notice, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression of sin. And we all say, Amen for the love of God like that. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, I think the word loving kindness, speaking of God, is used over 150 times. 150 times in the Old Testament, right? So we all agree with that, right? Oh, our God is compassionate. Our God is gracious. Our God is slow to anger. Our God is abounding in loving kindness and truth. His, he keeps His loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity. Praise God, He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression of sin. But what did I tell you in the very beginning? It is consistent with the rest of His attributes. Look at the rest of the verse. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There's the love of God. There's the justice of God. He goes on. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. How in the world is God's love coexisting both with forgiving of sins and being gracious and loving kindness generation after generation But behold, the justice of God is not negated by the love of God. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, verse 5, I'm sorry, no, verse 9. I need better glasses. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, the Word of God speaks. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. There we see the love of God and the responsibility of man. God is faithful. He will love unto generation, unto generation, unto generation to those who love Him and keep His commandments. When you have been saved, when the love of God has penetrated your heart, when you have been brought to the place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? God gives you a love for Him. Not an indifference toward Him. He gives you a love for Him. Let's jump into the New Testament. John 3.16, do we have to turn there? What does it say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved that God gave. Here's the love of God. God in His magnificent wisdom, in His sovereignty and in His providence, determined beforehand that He would save a people. And He would save them. So God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Look in Romans. I mentioned this verse earlier. Chapter 5. Verse 8. Romans 5. Verse 8. 
But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love was demonstrated. It wasn't only proclaimed. It was demonstrated on Calvary that He gave His Son Christ to die. Note that in all these verses and countless other verses that God is the originator of love in the heart of believer. Love begins with God. God defines that love. God's love was manifested in Christ. And here's the best part. It is applied to the believer. This love of God which started with God has been given to the believer through the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And it is applied through the Holy Spirit. Look in Romans 5 again. Go back three verses. Romans 5, 5. Paul speaks and he says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And I want to call your attention to that term poured out. Because that term, or as it may read in your King James Bible, it says shed abroad. But what that term really means is that the love of God has been dumped. It has been dumped. Think about that for a moment. It has been dumped in our hearts through the working of the person of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer, you know I'm a big fan, right? Tozer writes this. The Christian message says, God so loved, and that love is not for a species, but for individuals. God loves people. I remember Dan Garlick was a big influence in my life, and he always encouraged me. And we were talking one day, and you know, he always, he loved this church and he would always ask about the church, but we were speaking one day and he said, you know, I said, pray that the Lord blesses the church. He said, Brother Mark, I want to tell you something. I said, what's up, Dan? He goes, God doesn't bless churches. I said, what? He's God, God doesn't bless churches. God blesses people. Here we see Tozer saying the same thing. God doesn't it's not a love for a species. It's a love for individuals. The love of God, if you are in Christ, was individualized to you and has been shed abroad individually in your heart that you would be ever able to love like God. Listen, this love of God is, is evidence in that believers have been touched by the love of God as a result of that outpouring. What began with God, God in His rich mercy and love, God poured out to the believer in Christ, enabling believers to love like God. You ever think of that one? We have the capability to love as God, and I'm going to define that for you in a few minutes. We have the ability like God to have mercy on people. We have the ability like God to forgive people. We have the ability, like God, to have compassion on people. We have the ability, for, like God, to overlook sins of other brothers and sisters. 
God has shed that love of God abroad in the heart of the believers that we can indeed love like God. And this is played out. This is played out in the church, in the community of believers, and in the lives of individual believers. In our text in verse 7, the Apostle John makes an awesome statement. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And it is absolutely essential that we understand that this love of which the Apostle speaks throughout this text does not refer to human love, does not refer to romantic love or brotherly love, but John is very specific in his words here regarding love and the love of God. And he uses the agape form of love. Agape form of love. There's a profound, profound difference between the agape love of God and all iterations of the word love. John could have used the Greek word eros. Eros is Romantic love. It's where we get our English word erotic. It's romantic love. It signifies the love between a husband and wife. It signifies the love between maybe a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Right? It is a romantic kind of love. It's the love that is so often written about and sung about in popular music and in popular songs that are out there. This is the love we speak of when we say, oh, I'm falling in love with this person, or this person is in love with me. It's an eros type of love. Eros is based on emotion, based on desire, based on attraction. An eros type of love can be temporal. It can be powerful for the moment, but it also can wane with time. I remember the first girlfriend I ever had. And I was goo-goo-gaga as a teenager, right? I was just like, wow, I love this girl. You know, you meet her, you ask her out on a date, she says yes, and the next thing you know, you're planning your future, right? I'm going to marry her, I'm going to do that. I, I, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. I was just like goo-goo-gaga over this young girl. She was pretty. She met most of the criteria that I was looking for. I was 16 years old. What did I know, right? 16 years old. I was on the football team. I was like the cool jock, you know. Hey, let me walk down the hallway with my girlfriend, right? But that love began to wane. And that love began to dissipate. And once the excitement fell away, and once the revelation of her true character came out. It was like, what am I doing? That love was temporal. That love was based on what I wanted. And at the time, I thought I wanted that person. So everything rallied inside of me for that person. But you know what? After a period of time, there was no stability with that love. That's what Eros is. You have husbands and wives who make vows in a church that they're going to be together, right? And certain things and circumstances in their life occurs and, and that love begins to wane. That love begins to dissipate. Why? Because eros is not a love with which God loves us. Now, God could have used another word for love. 
He could have used the word phileo. And phileo is a brotherly love. It's a nice love. It's, it's a general fondness. You re- may, may remember at the end of the Gospel of John where, where Jesus meets the disciples on the, on the beach and he's cooking them breakfast. He's making some fish. And he turns to John and he says, John, do you love me? And Jesus uses that word. John, do you agape me? And John says to him, Lord, you know I love you. John uses phileo in that verse. He says, Lord, you know I have a general fondness for you. You know, I I have like a brotherly kind of love for you. And the Lord asks him again, John, do you love me? Do you agape me? And John says, Lord, you know I phileo you. I have that fondness for you. And Listen, and time forbids me to get into why he answered that way, but I'll give you a hint. He had betrayed the Lord, right? So he's probably thinking, the Lord's done with me, right? He doesn't want anything to do with me. And then the Lord Jesus stops, and he says, John, do you phileo me? Calling to his attention, I brought it down a notch. Is this what you have for me? You have a fondness? You have a, a brotherly type of love for you? And what does John say? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. John wasn't going to make the mistake like he made so many other times. Lord, if everybody abandons you, I'll stay here even if I have to die. And when he had his test of time and his test of bravery, he became a coward in front of a servant girl. Figuring he was done, he said, Lord, I'm not even going there. I, I, I can't tell you I agape you. Lord, you know all things. I have a phileo kind of love for you. John could have used this word to describe the love of God. There's nothing dishonorable about phileo love. Nothing at all. It's a nice love. It's what bonds people together. But like eros, a phileo love can very much be based on our wants and our desires It could be based on our emotions. I can't tell you how many times that, you know, somebody would tell me, brother, I love you, man. I love you, brother. I love you. And then, you know, a week, a day, five months later, boom, stab you in the back. And you go, what happened to that love? Please, do me a favor. Don't love me. You know, I don't need that. But the Apostle John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not use those words. He doesn't use those words at all to describe the love of God. Instead, he uses agape. And agape love originates with God. And agape love emanates from God. Agape love, listen to this, agape love involves preference. You're taking notes, write that down. Agape love involves preference. And particularly, it involves God's preference to love. Agape love involves sacrifice for others. Agape love involves both the desire and the will to do so. A technical definition of agape is 
properly to prefer to love. And when used in a personal sense, a believer, it's embracing God's will, choosing His choices, and obeying them through His power. Listen, God prefers to love the elect of God. He prefers. Agape love is not motivated by something a believer seeks to gain. It's not motivated by our gain. Nor is it motivated by something the believer wants. Or something the believer expects to be reciprocated. Imagine that. There's no gain. There's no want. And there's no expectation of of being reciprocated. This love is manifested in a preference to love. To love as God loved. And this is reflected. Listen, you see this played out in the fact that God's preference was not to save saints, but to save sinners. Oh my goodness. And to bring them into the kingdom and to make them join heirs with Christ and to grant them the righteousness of Christ and to cast their sins into the depths of the sea. How much we have to be reminded of this love of God. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 7. One of the minor prophets. Another favorite, favorite verse of mine in Scripture. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Listen to this love of God. Listen to this agape love of God. Listen to this preferential love of God. Verse 18. The prophet speaks. Who is a God like thee? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, and here is my favorite line in this verse. Thou wilt cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. Praise God. Here is the love of God. It's unchanging. He has preferred to love His remnant. He has preferred to love His people. And because He has preferred to love His people and love His remnant, He has taken their sins and cast them into the depths of the sea. And if I could add additional thought to the end of that verse, to be remembered no more. To be remembered no more. You know what Satan likes to do to the believer? I know because it happens to me every day. He likes to remind me of the person that I was before Jesus Christ. And he likes to play images in my mind of certain sins that I did before Jesus Christ. 
And he likes to say, man, if I paraded some of the people you used to hang out with and you gave them an opportunity to give testimony in the church, they would stone you right then and there. They'd run you out on a rail. And he likes to remind me, that's the person you are. That's who you really are. Stop kidding yourself with this Jesus stuff and forgiveness of sins. But the love of God is so overwhelming. It, it, it defines human understanding. That the God of all God, the living God, would be able to make a statement like this. Who, who pardons iniquity? Who pardons rebellious acts? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights. God chooses. God prefers. He delights in his unchanging love. Oh man, the love of God. The mercy of God. The grace of God. See, you know, there's a reason that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that John uses the agape love of God to articulate two points. First point, believers, believers are to love one another in the church with this, with this sacrificial love. I had a great opportunity to meet today another pastor I never had the opportunity to meet. And we met to have coffee and to kind of share some things together. And, and when we sat down, there was this unity. There was this bond. We were both in Christ we didn't know each other from, from a hole in the wall. But when we sat down together, the commonality of the love of Christ bound us together. And we were one because of this unchanging, unfathomable love for Christ. See, believers in the church, we could love each other with this sacrificial love, that love that doesn't have to be reciprocated, that love that says, I have a preference for you, that love that says, I'm going to esteem others as better than myself. We can love like God because the love of God has been shed abroad through our hearts through the Holy Spirit. John states here in verse 7, this is true faith and what separates believers from the world. And he makes a second point here regarding the agape love of God. In verse 7, he says, everyone who loves is born of God. And the believer wills, he wills to love as God. There's two great words there. He says in that verse, everyone who loves, there's the word agape. That's it in the Greek, the preferential love of God. Everyone who loves agape, everyone who has that preferential love of God, well, he says something is evident. You're born of God, so you've been saved, you've been born again. But he goes on, he adds that his other favorite word. He says, and knows God. There's the gnoskos. There's the experiential knowledge that he talks about. It's not theoretical. It's experiential. So we've seen those two principles. Here's the third principle. God's love is given to the believer by the Holy Spirit. This agape love of God is, is given to the believer. As I referenced earlier from Romans 5.5, 5, the agape love of God has been shed abroad. It's been poured out it's been dumped into the heart of the believer by the holy spirit 
And this love not only has as its origin God and not only is given by God, but listen, this agape love of God glorifies God. Glorifies. When we love as Christ's love, when we love as God loved, when the agape love of God has been poured out in our hearts, guess what? That glorifies God. When we love unconditional as God is love unconditional, when we love the church and the body of Christ, when we, when we do acts that are born out of love and solely by the love of God, God is glorified in that. We saw last week in verses 1 through 6 that John told the church, test the spirits, test the false teachers. He also instructed the church to discern between believers and unbelievers. And speaking to this very point, John states in, 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 he speaks to this very point in 1 John 4, 6. He says, we are from God. He who knows God, there's Gnosko, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to this. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The key is in verse 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. Look what John says in verse 7. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That knowing is not theoretical. That knowing is not just a few data points. That knowing is knowing the person of God. How do you know the person of God? Through the love of God. John MacArthur states this, Love, according to the Scriptures, is not a helpless sensation or a desire. Rather, it is a purposeful act of self-giving. The one who genuinely loves is deliberately devoted to the one loved. True love arises from the will and not blind emotions. This is the love of God. This is the love of Christ. This is the love of the church and the believer. This agape love of God should be showcased on display for all the world to see through us. Turn in your Bibles to John 13 real quick. John 13 because I want you to hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 13, 34. Our Lord Jesus says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love. There's the Greek word. The form of the word of agape, agapao. One another. Even as I have loved you that you also love one another. Every one of those instances is the root word for the word agape. That preferential love. So new commandment the Lord gives, what? That we love preferentially with the love of God one another even as Christ loved preferentially the will of God, that you also love one another. It's the role of the church. It's the role of believers. We are to love as Jesus loved. Self-sacrificing. 
knowing no wrong. Esteeming others is better than ourselves, as Paul says in Galatians. Listen, this is the bedrock truth of the gospel. Is that not the bedrock truth that God so loved the world? That God gave? And the believer, listen, the believer can do that. Because the believer has experienced he knows that love and therefore, as John says, knows God. And the term there, knows God again, is one of John's favorite terms that he uses. Believers in Christ are those who have apprehended the truth of the gospel. And it has been made manifest in their lives. Not only is truth manifested in the believer's life, but the love of God is manifested in the believer's life. A.W. Tozer, once again, he said this, that is how the love of God is. He loves you not because you are worthy, but because He is God. And you are a fixture in his mind. The Apostle Paul echoed a very similar statement in 1 Corinthians 8, 2-3. You don't have to turn there. He writes this, If anybody supposes that he knows anything and has not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Those that love with the agape love of God are those that truly know God. So the question becomes, what does this have to do with me? That's ultimately the question we have to ask ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, you don't have to turn there. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church at Ephesus. By the way, the church at Ephesus that had lost its first love later on in Revelation. So this is about 30 years before that letter was written by the Lord Jesus Christ to the, third, the uh, church at Ephesus. Look what he writes. Paul writes, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, agape, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God, agape, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. That the church would know the love of Christ, that agape love. As a people of God, as a church of God, how critical is it that not only we know of the love of God for us, but we have a deep abiding love for God. And for the brothers and sisters in the church. That as a people of God, that we would serve each other in the church, serve our neighbors, and serve our community. I began this message with the great hymn, The Love of God, and I read to you the first and third stanzas. But the chorus of that reads as follows. O love of God, how rich and pure, 
how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. I pray that the Word of God challenges our hearts today to ask so that we would ask several questions. First, is the love of God in my heart? Does my life reflect this truth? Second, do I, as, 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 as a Christian, do I have Christ in me? And do I have Christ's love? And do I love not with my objectives in mind, but sacrificially, without self-interest, serving others? And thirdly, does my heart have a genuine love for God and for the things of God? I want to point something out to you. Does my heart have a genuine love for God? God becomes the object. He's the object. So do I have a genuine love for God? There's the object. Second, do I have a love for God? There's the desire. And third, and do I have a love for the things of God? There is the will. Do we love God? Is He the object of all of our affections? Do we have a desire for God? Is there the desire in my heart for God? And is there a desire for the things of God? You know, when you approach subjects like this, they become so profound that to break them down into a quick 45-minute, 50-minute message is daunting which is why I only did one verse today. Because we really need to define what is this love of God because the rest of the chapter is going to speak of this love of God. But I wanted to make absolutely clear that we didn't go into this equating God's love with human love so that we could see that God is such a higher love, such a, a more spectacular love, a love that can't be defined and we could, we could barely put parameters around us because each and every one of us, if we are in Christ, we have been saved by that love. He has taken our sin and He has cast them in the depth, depth of the ocean. Lord, if you mark our transgressions, who would stand? And it's a rhetorical question. None would stand. But praise God, He doesn't mark our transgressions. Next week, we're going to jump into verses 8 through 11, and we're going to plumb deeper and deeper into this love.